0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tu Romende, and today we'll be talking to Anna Zaika Stanton about her new book, The Worlding of Arabic Literature, Language, Effect, and the Ethics of Translatability. Thank you for being on the podcast, Anna. It's,
0: uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to do this.
1: So um, let's start with uh, uh, that we talk about, about yourself. first. How did you arrive at the stage where you are right now? Sure. So
0: really, I began with Arabic and got to the literature through the language in a lot of ways. Um, I started studying Arabic in my first semester as an undergraduate at Georgetown University. Um, this was shortly after 9-11. Um, When there was a lot of interest nationally in the U.S., in the Arabic language and in the Middle East region more generally. And a lot of universities were hiring language teachers and building programs, um, which probably made Arabic easier to study um, than it would have been, you know, even a decade previously. Um, Although these weren't really um, the the reasons that I was interested. Um, It was really probably two things that led me to Arabic. Um, First, My grandfather's family on my mom's side immigrated to the U.S. from Syria in the early 20th century. And this was a part of my family history I'd always wanted to know more about. Um, It was not, you know, Arabic was not spoken in my house. My mother actually never learned it. Um, But it was sort of somewhere somewhere there right in my past. um, Something that I was sort of, you know, I guess, curious about at the very least. Um, And I think second, uh, because I'd always been fascinated by alphabets um and the idea that languages express themselves um not only through words but through material forms through graphic representations um this led me at one point um sort of earlier on in my my life actually when i was in high school um to to learn some classical greek because i was um, curious you know that the alphabet itself kind of um uh, drew me to it I think um, but you see I guess you see these motivations reflected in the book to some extent um, I mean this is in some ways sort of the distant past um, for me personally but you know I think my abiding interest in the materiality of language um, my fascination with how alphabets are able to express content through form through morphology uh, sound letter shapes Uh, The ways alphabets themselves interface um, themselves, right, interface with the world sonically and physically or even physiologically, Um, you know, these were sort of, yeah, these were, I think, were some of what sort of led me to this project in, you know, in kind of the um, very sort of early, early stages of how I began thinking about these things.
1: Thank you so much. And uh, you translated Hilal Shuman's Limbo Beirut, which came out in 2016, I think. Um, Can you tell us how you started the journey writing your new book, The Worlding of Arabic Literature?
0: Sure. Um, So The Worlding of Arabic Literature, like so many first monographs, um, grew out of the dissertation that I wrote for my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, um, which included a chapter on Limbo Beirut, uh, which is a novel that I translated when I was a graduate student, mostly during the year when I was also reading for my comprehensive exams. Uh, and this was pretty much all I was doing that year, uh, translating hilal's book and reading a lot of literary theory, a lot of pre-modern Arabic texts, as well as contemporary Arabic novels, um, toggling back and forth right between translating in the morning and reading in the afternoon, Um, So even at this stage, I I think I I couldn't not think about what I was doing as a translator, theoretically and critically. Um, And by the time I was really working on the book, uh, the monograph, after I came to Penn State, uh, Limbo Beirut had just been published and it was still very much in my thoughts and uh, I suppose in my mind and body, the experience of translating it, the modes of mediating between Arabic and English that it required from me. Um, how it had called on me to take on the embodied experiences of the novel's characters who were shaped uh, by having up di- grown up during the Civil War in Lebanon, of course, but also by their relationships to the people in their lives and the city of Beirut itself. So I think um, this is why or one of the reasons why the worlding of Arabic literature ultimately became a book, um, not just about translation, but about translators. And the way their own language um, and their own psychic and embodied experiences of the world end up becoming somehow materially changed or inflected by their translation practices. Um, Because this was something that I went through, that I felt as I was translating Hilal's novel, um, but also sort of in this sort of formative stage of my own thinking about translation. Um, as a praxis and, you know, and thinking about how to ha- thinking about how to think theoretically about translation. These processes were all sort of entwined for me. Um, so yeah, that, I don't know if that, that answers your question, but that's, I think, some of how these two, I guess, two books that I've published, which are, you know, obviously very different in form, um, one a translation and one, a, you know, work of academic scholarship, how they, how they are, you um, how how they think with each other, I think. They think about each other. They also think with each other. They're sort of two pieces of one process, I think, that led me to where I am now.
1: And um, coming to your new book, I was kind of curious about the title of the book, The Worlding of Arabic Literature. Can you tell us what you mean by the title exactly?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, let me start with the word worlding, right, which I, I know is kind of a tricky word, a problematic word, even. Um, I mean, for one thing, Microsoft Word doesn't think it's a word um, and other spell check programs don't think it's a word. So it's always getting autocorrected when I type out the title of my book. Um, you know, it becomes working or sometimes um, word, word, wordly or something like this, wordy maybe, um, or some other word, right? Um, you know, and people when they first read the title of my book aloud often mispronounce it um, or see it as, as a word other than what it is. Um, so I don't know, maybe it, maybe it wasn't a good word to put in the title. Um, but, you know, I also stand by it um, because worlding signifies two things that really get at what the book is doing or at least what it's trying to do. Um, And this is the balancing act that it's trying to negotiate in how it's thinking about what happens to Arabic literature when it gets translated into English. Um, So first of course is the idea of Arabic literature becoming world literature, right, through the kinds of circulatory pathways that open up to it when it's translated into English. Um, And here I'm thinking about world literature in David Damrosh's sense or maybe even Pascal Casanova's sense, where a book's worldliness is a function of where and by whom it's read Um, And especially if this is happening in the Anglophone literary field or the Francophone literary field, right, in Casanova's book, um, which have a kind of instrumental power, a necessary degree of prestige uh, to anoint a particular text as world literature. Um, But there's also a second kind of worldliness that I talk about in the book as well that complicates and maybe even in some ways uh, resists this first definition Um, Which draws on Martin Heidegger's idea of worlding as as he defines it, right, as the hallmark activity of a work of art that brings things in themselves into meaningful presence in a way analogous to how the world as such sets forth the things within it so as to reveal their unconcealed natures, right? This is my kind of paraphrase of Heidegger anyway. Um, And this is what I argue that translation can do for the work that's translated, um, I guess, at its best and most ethical and so I think of these two ideas of worlding as constantly undoing each other, so that if worlding in the world literature sense presumes a narrow and you know eurocentric or maybe Anglo-centric notion of why translation into English matters for a work of Arabic literature, then Heidegger's sense allows for worldliness also to be a, an imminent quality of the work itself um, that enables it to reach outward sort of extensively and intensively, aesthetically, materially. Uh, into all these possible entanglements um, with what's outside of it. And translation, right, again, at its best and most ethical, can make this quality resonate in other languages and other reception contexts um, different than the ones in which the work was originally produced, right? This is sort of one of the core arguments of my book. Um, You know, and finally, I would say that if Heidegger's sense of worldliness also tends to register maybe as a bit mystical or mystifying, Um, You know, elevating the work of art above the messiness of actual people reading and writing and translating, Um, then the Damrosh or Casanova sense of worldliness re-embeds the text, I think, in the actual conditions of production and reception and consumption um, so this is another way in which the two ideals of, of worlding that the title invokes work in a kind of productive tension with each other, which is you know, why, why I will stick with this title, um, why I will defend this title, despite its perhaps um, awkwardness or the, the, the problems that it might also um, provoke as the book circulates.
1: And um, you start with Edward Said, where he says that there is an absence of translated Arabic literature from the Anglo-American literary field. Can you maybe explain how much this scene has changed since he wrote this?
0: Mm -hmm. So as I say in the introduction to the book, uh, something like a little over 300, I think 328 new English translations of works of Arabic fiction and poetry Um, were published in the U.S. between 2008 and 2022. Um, And while this might not sound like all that many books over the course of 25 years, um, compared to the situation when Saeed published his essay, this is the essay Embargoed Literature in 1990, um, it's a huge change. And it's also worth noting that while the majority of new English translations of Arabic fiction that are sold in the U.S. are still published by independent or university presses, um, and here, you know, we can think of places like the American University in Cairo Press or Interlink, um, New Directions, Syracuse University Press, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at, at UT Austin. Um, you know, while that's they still these kinds of publishers still publish most of the translations of Arabic literature that we find in um, in the U.S., um, larger commercial Anglophone publishers have also recently gotten, you know, at least a bit more interested in publishing um, translations of Arabic literature as well. Um, for example, I think several of Larry Price's recent translations of uh, Khalid Khalifa um, came out from FSG. Jonathan Wright's translation of Ahmed Saadawi's uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad, right? Frankenstein fi Baghdad was published by Penguin Random House, um, which also distributed Marilyn Booth's um, translation of Narinja, right, by uh, Joel Harafi. Um, Elizabeth Jaquette's translation of Dima Wannous' Al-Kha'ifun was published by Knopf. Um, So, right, these are just some examples. There's more as well. So this, to me, signals something of a change um, versus sort of the era that Saeed is locating his observations in, right, in the 80s, in the 90s. Um, Although, you know, of course, famously, the first English translation of Mahfouz's trilogy was commissioned by Doubleday in the U.S. in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, or that's when it was published anyway, um, under the editorship of Jacqueline Kennedy On'assis, which is you know about as high profile as you get probably in terms of a press and an editor at least for the time. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I do see things, things changing um, for, you know lots of reasons um, uh, since you know since Saeed was was sort of, yeah, was observing the, the scene uh, in the late 80s and, and early 90s
1: and uh, you talk about quite a lot of books in your uh, new work. What made these works that you choose so special and what were the reasons uh, behind choosing those works for your new book? Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So I was attempting to give snapshots of different kinds of Arabic literature and different factors shaping the reception of Arabic literature in the Anglophone literary fields um, though in the first chapter of the text that I consider, which is this is Humphrey Davies' translation of Ahmed Faris al uh, 1855, multi-generic, stylistically and linguistically extremely multifaceted and complex um, work, Asaq ala Asaq fi al which was published by the Library of Arabic Literature in 2013-2014. Um, you know, this translation uh, gives a view of how a work of Arabic literature that is, in some ways, a lot more like adab than it is like a novel in the Western sense of the word, right? which I guess by which I mean, it's sort of literary in the most capacious and complex way possible, um, how this kind of a text comes into English. And in this case, also within a new publishing initiative that was intended to make pre-modern Arabic literature accessible and enjoyable for English language readers. This is the Library of Arabic literature series. in the second chapter, I look at Richard Francis Burton's uh, translation of the Arabic Alflele uh, or Arabian Nights stories, which came out in um, between 1885 and 1888. Um, and these, you know, these stories—the so-called Arabian Nights stories or Alflele Walela, were for a long time all that most Anglophone publics knew about Arabic literature. Um, Some version of these stories. So I I don't think you can tell the story of the reception of Arabic literature in English translation without talking about these stories, even if they're not really that important in Arabic literary history, or weren't maybe until more recently, uh, because of how influential they've been in shaping what English language readers expect from Arabic literature. Um, And in the third chapter, I look at my own translation of Hilal Shuman's novel, Limbu Beirut, which I talked about a few minutes ago, Um, You know, and I take this as more or less an exemplary case study for thinking about how a contemporary Arabic novel gets translated into English today. Um, And of course, this also gives me an opportunity to to talk about some of the things that I was mentioning earlier about my own reflections on my translation praxis. um, The uh, the ways that, you know, the translation, um, you know, the, the experiential aspects of translation for me. Uh, and then in the fourth chapter, I examine uh, Sinan Antun's self-translation with Rebecca Johnson of his 2004 novel, Jam*, which was published in the US at the height of the second Iraq war in 2007, um, as a way to get into considering the political and historical factors that inform how English language readers, especially in the US, uh, approach reading Arabic literature in translation and the ways that a particular translation might confirm or defy their expectations for what um, Arabic literature can or should be aesthetically or politically and where these expectations come from. Um, But also as I guess as a kind of um, experiment uh, in how we can talk about the politics of translation while still really talking about the writing, reading and translating of literature as fundamentally aesthetic practices. Um, this is the challenge that I see this novel as setting for, you know, for me or for a scholar who would talk about it in these terms.
1: And um, you divided your book into four chapters. Do each chapters build up upon each other or can they be read separately? And um, yes, can you elaborate on how you structured the book?
0: Mm hmm. I would like to think that they can each be read separately. I, I think I claimed in my pitch to uh, to the publisher um, when I was first putting this book together that they could be, because um, a chapter is kind of a nice length to a uh, you know a sign for a class reading that sort of thing, um, you know. And I think um, you know in terms of the structure, um, you know, I use throughout the book I use these Arabic terms as keywords to structure each chapter. Um, so for chapter one, it's lofs, right, form, meaning form as opposed to meaning. Um, for chapter two, it's Sajjah, which is a literary device of unmetered rhyming prose that occurs in the stories. Um, for chapter three, it's the right, which is the Arabic dual case or dual grammar. Um, and for chapter four, it's the idea of the Ajami or the foreign or foreignized um, that kind of provides the, the, the key word or key, key concept for the chapter. So, you know, in addition to being about a specific work and its translation, each chapter also thinks about and thinks with a term from the discourse of Arabic literary and aesthetic theory. Um, this was sort of part of what the book is trying to do as well. Um, and in fact, I just uh, recently finished co-editing a special feature for the journal PMLA. Uh, with Lara uh, Lara Harb and Jeannie Miller, um, I'll just you know plug it here because why not? Um, but it's also relevant uh, that we titled an Arabic theoretical lexicon where we asked authors to do the same thing, right? Sort of think with a keyword, think with a term um, from the Arabic intellectual tradition um, for a range of other other words, other terms, other concepts. Uh, so we have um, an essay about an essay about tarab, an essay about, an essay about um, and other words as well, um, where we, you know, in each case, the, the, the author of the essay is sort of is doing this kind of work of theorizing with this term. Um, and of course, you know, also sort of defining and and um, explicating the term uh, for, you know, for audiences who may or may not be familiar with the word, who may or, not, may, or may not be familiar with the Arabic intellectual tradition uh, more broadly. And I got the idea for the special feature partly from how I structured my own book, um, and from recognizing that there are so many terms in Arabic that bear conceptually upon some of the big questions in literary studies today, um, but just tend not to be mobilized theoretically in that capacity, uh, even by scholars of Arabic literature. Um, you know so what would we gain by, by doing this, by doing more of this work? Um, and what might other scholars who, who don't work on Arabic literature gain by doing this? And so you know part of, of my thinking behind you know behind this book, behind the worlding of Arabic literature, is to structure it this way, you know, as a kind of, you know, in a kind of bid to to say, you know, look, these terms can be activated theoretically, um, you know, to do the kind of readings that I'm doing and to do the kind of um, scholarship that I'm trying trying to do here to, you know, how would this work and what would this look like? Well, here's an example.
1: And one work you are uh, concentrating on in one of the chapters is The Arabian Nights, which has been recently new translated by Yasmin Seel. Uh, can you maybe tell us a bit about um, how there is so much fascination about this book and how each translation is maybe different from each other?
0: Yeah. So, as I said earlier, I don't think you can tell the story of the translation of Arabic literature into English, you know, maybe for, for better or worse, um, without talking about these stories, without talking about the Thousand and One Nights, or which is sort of the more literal translation of the Arabic title, right? The stories in Arabic are known as Al-Flayla wa um, literally, right? A Thousand Nights and a Night. Um, The Arabian Nights, that title gets sort of tacked on um, by some of the, I think by, it might have been, anyway, that's a sort of the Anglophone title under which the the stories tend to be known or have been known. Um, But, you know, um, like you say, right, European audiences have been fascinated by these stories uh, ever since the first French version or adaptation translation um, by Antoine Gallant was published early in the 18th century. And, you know, since then, there have been so many English translations, which is, of course, what I'm interested in, um, that have taken so many different approaches in terms of which stories to include, what kind of language to use in translating them, who the intended audience is, children or adults, um, you know, including translations by Jonathan Scott in 1800, Edwin Forster in 1802, George Lamb in 1826, Henry Torrens in 1838, Edward Lane, um, in 1839, 1840, John Payne in 82, 84, um, Edward Mathers in 1923, N.J. Dalwood in 1954, Hussein Haddawi in 1990, Malcolm and Ursula Lyons in 2008, right, the list, it's a long list, an, an exhausting list, right, um, and most recently, like you said, uh, Yasmeen Seal's translation in 2021, which I highly recommend, um, anyone is teaching this book in a class or just wants to you know have a sort of a, a fresh look at the stories. Um, you know so on the one hand of course the interest in these stories reflects an Orientalist perception of the Middle East as exotic, fantastical, maybe erotic depending on the translation. Um, you know, but also the stories at this point are not really Arabic stories, um, if they if they ever were in some ways, or right, if we can ever claim, at least claim Arabic as an origin point for these stories, which I, I don't think we can, um, so much as they're world stories. Um, you know, and they were in some ways, even before they were translated into European languages, you know, Cervantes, right, in Don Quixote, which was written in the early 17th century. Um, uses plot elements that seem to have been borrowed from the from the Leila walena stories, uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Boccaccio's Decameron. These are both 14th century texts, um, you know, so before, again, before the stories were translated, um, widely translated into European languages, right, these Chaucer and Boccaccio both use the technique of a frame story, which was probably first introduced into Europe from the Arabic literary tradition uh, via Muslim Spain, which is a technique, of course, that the thousand and one nights stories also use and which itself has roots probably in Sanskrit literature. Um, So I think that's also part of what makes people endlessly interested in these stories. Um, It's not just the sort of Orientalist aspects, but it's that they're always already worldly and thus always open to being adapted and appropriated and mimicked um, by anyone who wants to do so. So, I mean, I think for this reason, you know, they have generated such an incredibly rich um, body of scholarship, corpus of scholarly works in so many languages and in so many different contexts, not to mention, right, literary versions, literary adaptations of all kinds, again, in so many different languages, in so many different contexts.
1: And um, thank you so much. And um, I think there has been in recent years quite a lot of uh, translations of Arabic literature made available. And can you imagine how maybe publishers choose uh, which work to publish in English?
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the part of my sort of when I was talking about um, my own background and how I got to these topics at the beginning of our conversation, I, I didn't mention... Um, the fact that I also have a background in publishing, um, albeit, you know, a sort of brief one um, in my kind of um, inter interlude between finishing my bachelor's degree and going to graduate school. I worked for the American University in Cairo Press for a couple of years. Um, I worked in Abu Dhabi for the book fair there for a couple of years. Um, you know, but that said, that my knowledge is a little bit out of date at this point, because that was a few years ago. But, you know, my sense... Is that um, you know? So I guess I you know I I'm not qualified to to, to speak to sort of the, the intricacies of of the publishing process precisely. But but my sense is that um, many works, most works of contemporary Arabic literature, end up being published in English translation today for one of maybe three reasons: um, either the work won a prize in Arabic, or it has a translator who was willing and able to advocate for its translation. Um, which takes a lot of work, um, or because other works um, by the same author were translated previously and were at least modestly commercially successful, um, you know. And maybe a fourth factor to mention as well is that there are now um, several active literary agencies working specifically to represent Arab authors to Western publishers. Um, you know, so this is is probably um, a pathway or a route that at least some works take or or will be taking. Yeah. Um, to reach translation. Um, I will say to my, again, to my knowledge, um, rarely, if ever, have I heard of an acquisitions editor at an English language publishing house, especially one of the larger commercial ones that I was talking about earlier, um, reading the original work in Arabic and then deciding to commission a translation. I mean, I suppose it maybe has happened, could happen, right? Um, uh, Jackie, uh, Jackie Kennedy Onassis, for example, read Mahfouz in French. Um, before she decided to pursue translation rights, she she did not read the, the um, read his novels in, in Arabic, um, but you know that's my sense is that sort of one of those three ways um, with maybe this you know the addition of literary agencies now as opening up maybe a fourth a fourth route for works to get into English translation if, you know, to answer the question of sort of, how does a work get picked up for translation? Why this particular work and not that particular work, right? I think this would be my sense of how this works.
1: And you also talk about uh, a few prizes that uh, are uh, available in the Arabic world, like the Arabic Booker, the IPEF, and the conclusion and what impact did this and other prizes have on the literary landscape as a whole?
0: So I think money, right, is a big part of it. Um, that, as I say in the, in the conclusion of my book, these prizes have pumped money into the literary fields um, around contemporary novels in particular that really wasn't there 20 years ago. Um, you mentioned the, the Arabic Booker or the IPAF, right, the International Prize for Arabic Fiction. Uh, which is the best known of these prizes and awards, um, the, and it it uh, it gives out, I believe, fifty thousand dollars annually to a single novel published in Arabic during the previous year. Um, there's a shortlist. Each of those authors also gets some money. Um, there's also the Sheikh Zayed Book Awards, whose prize in literature is worth around two hundred thousand dollars US. I think it's seven hundred fifty thousand um, Emirati dirhams. Um, there's the Doha-based a uh, Qatara prize, which is worth around $300,000 divided among five published novels. Um, and there's also prize money for unpublished novels. Um, there's prizes based in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait for translations, for short stories. Um, so, you know, all of the prizes I just mentioned are financed by governmental or semi-governmental entities in the Arab Gulf states. Um and, you know, there's also the, I guess I, I should mention, the American University in Cairo Press's um, give Mahfouz Medal for Literature, which is the old, much, um, much older, much older, maybe not much older, older than these other prizes. It was established in 1996, um, but it's worth only $5,000, which, you know, is not a lot compared to these, um, the, the newer prizes that come out of the, the Gulf states. Um, and... Uh, you know, some critics have claimed that the new prizes are changing why Arabic literature is written today, and even the kind of literature that's being written, um, that authors are writing to win prizes and publishers are encouraging them to do so, um, amounting to a kind of commercialization of Arabic literature in the, in the current millennium in the 21st century. Um, so I guess, you know, the money... Um, or at least according to this this logic, you know the money that these prizes are um, infusing into the literary fields um, has produced effects for the literature itself, which are not always good ones or not always seen as being good ones. Um, you know and I, I mean um, I'm sure there's some some truth to this idea that that authors, may be writing books that they think will win prizes. Publishers may be encouraging them to write books that will win prizes or publishing the kinds of books that they think might win prizes. Um, you know, these, um, you know, these debates to me anyway, also echo the kinds of debates that prizes have always generated in the cultural sphere where creative artists are supposed to be immune to the seductions of financial profit or artistic val. And uh, right, they're supposed to be immune to the seductions of financial profit. Um, you know, artistic value is supposed to be honored in aesthetic terms rather than economic ones, right, which I think is just not practical or true, Um, that art could be somehow outside of these circuits, um, that somehow, you know, prizes sort of wouldn't matter. Um, And I think, you know, even in the era in which art um, was being produced mainly through patronage systems rather than for more overtly commercial reasons, you know, poetry in the Arabic context or portraiture in the European context, um, these were still ultimately financial arrangements and ones that bestowed cultural capital on the artist um, that helped them to succeed in what they were doing. So, you know, I guess all this is to say that art, you know, has never been and probably, you know, will never be sort of outside um, these or. Uh, apart from or held held apart from, cannot be held apart from these economic factors um, and factors of prestige, right? Cultural capital. So in the case of the new Arabic literary prizes, as I argue in the book, um, we can't see them as all bad because they've also pushed a lot more works into international circulation. Um, and when I say international, I also mean within the Arabic speaking region, right? Not just, you know, sort of from the Arab world to the West, right? Not in this kind of binary way, but also you know, works that are published in Egypt can now more easily be bought in, you know, the Emirates or, you know, this kind of thing, right. That there's this, the money has helped to create these new, um, circulation networks for literature as well. Um, you know, so as I guess, is it better to have literature that's untainted by considerations of profit or prestige, but no one can or does read it? Um, you know, that's maybe I'm sort of, you know, asking this question in a sort of deliberately provocative way, right? Of course, it doesn't have to be a sort of either or choice. um, But I think there's something to be said. And this is, again, one of the arguments I make in the book for simply the fact of literature being available, being readable, you know, circulating at all, that that's not something to be discounted or, or overlooked. And I think the prizes in that sense have helped to make this possible, have helped to bring literature to audiences who wouldn't have had Um, or Arabic literature, right, Um, to audiences who wouldn't have had access to it previously, whether that's in other languages through translation or simply within Arabic um, to audiences in in other regions of the Arabic-speaking world.
1: And uh, since you published The Worlding of Arabic Literature, what other projects are you working on right now?
0: All right. um, So my new project, um, rather differently, looks at representations of trees, at least I think this is where I'm going with it, um, as uh, symbols, tropes, or characters in literary works from the Arab Gulf and the Levant and Mesopotamian regions, um, as a way of thinking about human-non-human relations and the ways that reading literature entangles us with arboreal ecosystems and ecologies. Um, And this goes back all the way to Gilgamesh, um, but it also happens when we read 20th and 21st century literature from the Gulf, uh, where palms are the dominant tree species and are very much bound up with human survival in the desert, um, or books from um, literature from Palestine, where olive and citrus trees often figure prominently as emblems of the land, um, or symbols for the resistance and persistence of the people on that land, or maybe the foreclosure of resistance and ongoingness. Um, when the trees are cut down, um, or from Lebanon, where the cedars are a national treasure, right? The cedars of Lebanon, but are also threatened by climate change, human encroachment, um, deforestation efforts that date literally to the time of the historic Gilgamesh. Um, so the new book will be very different from the first one, um, but it's also interested in, in the material entanglements with what is other to us that reading literature occasions and makes possible and induces Um, maybe even in ways that we don't consciously recognize, but which we cannot not respond to viscerally and ethically.
1: Thank you, Anna, for the conversation and for being on the podcast today.
0: Thank you very much for having me. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you.